Un yeah, here we go. A very formal welcome. A very formal, not so formal. A very warm welcome. Almost rhymes with formal. To Torah Studies. Now, I am super excited because Torah Studies is back. When I say back, here's what I mean. We were off for last week because it was uh, Wednesday night was Simchat Torah. It was a party. Before that, we had a few sessions on Sunday instead of Wednesday. So the last time we did Torah Studies on a Wednesday, it seems like... I don't know, maybe it's about a month ago or something. It seems like way too long. So it's really good to, be, to get back into the rhythm of Wednesday nights together, studying Torah, um, getting inspired, inspiring each other. This is, this is the best way to spend a Wednesday night. And I'm glad to spend this time with you. So in addition to the Rufu Shlem that we mentioned before, um, we also have a very special dedication of tonight's class in the honor and in the merit of Rabbi Schusterman, whose birthday it was yesterday, his Hebrew birthday was yesterday. So this is a perfect time to sponsor a class as he takes the energy into, the, um, into his new year, his personal Rosh Hashanah. As we know, um, everybody's birthday, especially the Hebrew birthday, is like, uh, one's own, is like one's own Rosh Hashanah. And it is thus very appropriate to take good resolutions and to wish each other happy, happy birthday and etc. when it's somebody's birthday. So on that note, I'd like to mention um, the, the sponsors and a special shout out to Adina Malka for coordinating the sponsorship. So Adina Malka, Joy, Howard and Charna, Fred and Donna, Sandrine, Steve, Matt and Linda, thank you so much for the sponsorship. Um, may the merit of the sponsorship and the study of Torah benefit Rabbi Schusterman and stand in his good merit, as well as all of those that help support Torah study um, in this class. So let's jump in. This is, lesson, this is session one of our brand new Torah study season for 5782. Yes, we did have a Rosh Hashanah session, a Yom Kippur session, and a Sukkot session, but those were holiday editions. This is now getting into the rhythm of the new Torah cycle. We started last week in synagogues around the world with the Torah portion of Bereshit. Um, I hope you studied that on your own because we didn't do it together. But this week, we look at the Torah portion of Noah. By the way, just so you know, I muted everyone to have a nice clean background. If you have a question, etc., you can jump in, unmute, and, uh, and we, can, we can have a, a quick schmooze. All right, so tonight the topic is science and faith, or more precisely, Torah and science. Um, there is a conception out there, there is a belief, which is funny because we're talking about belief, but stay with me for a second. There is a belief out there that um, if you believe in science, you can't really believe in Torah. Now, one of the big areas of, of conversation, I was about to say contention, but no, we'll, t we'll call it conversation is regarding the date or the age of the universe. Yeah, you ever hear about this? Um, I, I, what's the Jewish year? Help me out here. Somebody unmute. What's the Jewish year? So, 5782. Thank you, 5782. And we say it's 5782 from creation. Heyo, science says, survey says, uh, billions of years old, which is, by the way, not a little difference, it's a big difference. 
And there have been many attempts to have this conversation, which I do not intend to wade into tonight. And although I'm starting the conversation, here's what I'm saying. I, we're not going to get entrenched in the specific um, element of this conversation, but more broadly, the general topic. And the general topic is, is Torah and science, is science and faith compatible or incompatible? Oftentimes we think we got to pick and choose. Yeah, when it's time to study Torah, we're studying Torah. Science, all right, forget about the Torah for a second, we're studying science. Some people study Torah and reject science. Some people study science and reject Torah. Is there a way to find a happy medium? Can't we all get along? That is going to be today's focus. Is there a way to reconcile these two seemingly vastly different universes, that of science and that of Torah? So, in order to do this, we're going to look at this week's Torah portion. Now, there are two major episodes in this week's Torah portion. Major stories in the Torah portion. The Torah portion is called Noach. And it's named after a guy named, yeah, Noach. That's, that's the guy's name. Oh, in English, it's super different. It's Noah. They just dropped a C. Why? I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't tell you why. They just dropped a, a letter. Here's the deal. Noach, we'll just go ch, because... It's a soft... Ah, okay. It's maybe one of those H's with a little dot underneath. You ever see that one? People put the H with a dot. There was a book written by Rabbi Lowenthal. Lowenthal? I think so. Rabbi Lowenthal from England. Um, he got his PhD in philosophy. He wrote a book on Chabad philosophy, maybe even comparing and contrasting with other philosophies. I don't know. I haven't read the book. He wrote the book a while ago. It was actually his thesis paper which is very long, and he ended up publishing it. The Reb encouraged him very strongly. And um, it's called Chabad. That's what it's called. And it's about the Chabad philosophy. But no, it's not spelled C-H-A-B-A-D. It's spelled H-A-B-A-D, Chabad. But it's got the dot under the H, which I'm thinking makes it from a ha to a ha or somewhere in between. But here's the point. I don't want to get too sidetracked here with the, with the, uh, with the sounds. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, but, but uh, it's written, you know. All right, but here's the deal. Noach, the Torah portion, contains two major stories. One that pertains to Noach, to, to our hero, and that's the story of the Great Flood. But the second is a story that might otherwise get lost in the, uh, in the limelight, and that is the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. The... the um, which we'll get to in a moment. The story of the flood is well known. Humanity is corrupt. God says, out with y'all. We're going to start again. We're going to clean slate and, uh, or clean house with a clean slate and rinse everything away and purify, etc. So God brings the flood, puts Noah and his family in the ark with the animals. They survive and they rebuild the universe. Well, they, build, they repopulate the world. Well, after that, not so long after, there was another episode. And that is the episode of the tower. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the texts and study what happened with the tower. As we'll see soon, it's a very en enigmatic tale, and it speaks a lot. It speaks volumes about the relationship between spirituality and science. So let's jump in. Um, give me a quick second as I get the PDF ready to roll. Okay, here we go. It is ready. 
And um, I'm going to ask Adina Malka, where are you? I'm sure you're here. Adina Malka, if you wouldn't mind to unmute and jump in. I'm going to make this a little bit bigger so we can all see. All right, take it away. This is text 1A, Genesis 11, verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. So the bricks were to them for stones, and the clay was for them for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the entire earth. So what happens here is, as the population grows, this is after the flood where everything kind of got reset. So as the population grows, and there's a lot of people, they wanted to... I, I don't know if the Torah says they wanted to build a city, they wanted to build a tower, the tower going up to the heavens, to have a name for themselves, whatever that means. There's so many commentaries, by the way, on what this means, which I don't want to get entrenched right now in the various uh, understandings. We'll have a really interesting one at the end of the class. But here's the deal. They wanted to build a magnificent edifice, a very tall tower, a skyscraper, if you will. Well, what happens? What happens ultimately? Take a look at the next text, text 1b. The plot is foiled. The plot is foiled. Dina Malka, if you don't mind, please read text 1b as well. This is, and one second, let me, sorry, let me just jump in. This is God's response to the, 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 the building of this tower. Take, uh, jump in. Come, let us descend and confuse their language so that one will not understand the language of his companion. And God scattered them from there upon the face of the entire earth and they ceased building the city. So what happens? God intervenes. They're trying to band together different people from different nationalities to build this common tower, this magnificent edifice, to flex their architectural capacity, their architectural, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, acumen or skill. They're looking to flex their engineering ability. And what happens? God says, not going to happen. Not on my watch. God confuses the language. They can't communicate with each other anymore. It's complicated. They don't understand each other. And that if, um, essentially ends this entire building campaign. So what's interesting here is that when you look at it from the surface, you might draw the following conclusion. The people were banding together. They were taking the latest technologies. They were, and let me explain what they were. We're talking about architecture design, engineering, they created bricks. Bricks had never been used before. Typically it was stone and wood that was used to build edifices. Now they're using, hey, good to see you, Matt. Now they're using um, wood and, uh, and, sorry, now they're using bricks and mortar to get involved. So it's like a whole, it's a whole new uh, situation. Um, and because of this, because of this, we can safely say, that this represents a big advancement within society, where you have a society that is no longer, you know, um, uh, um, satisfied with small huts. They're now building a big edifice. They're, they're showing off their talents and abilities. What happens? God says, not going to happen, not on my watch. I'm going to confuse the language, going to mess up this project, and basically end this campaign. So... They're trying to use their scientific knowledge. I'm framing it now in the context of science. These people are trying to use their scientific know-how, their um, the skills and the ideas and the know-how that they that they've gained to create something. And God nopes them. God says, "Not going to happen." Right? 
Seems like Torah, God, is anti-science. Seems like anti-progress, anti-science. Um, which begs the question, how do we really understand? How do we make sense of that? How does it make sense that God would have stopped progress from happening? Here we see an example, it seems, of human progress, um, advancements in technology, and etc. And God says, we're stopping it here. Why is God stopping it here? Is Torah really anti-science? Is Judaism really anti-science? Is God really anti-science? Or is there something deeper at play? Of course, you probably realize by now there's something deeper at play, which we're going to get to in today's session. But before we do that, let's talk about the other major story. So this story, the story of the tower, is at the end of the Torah portion. The story of the flood, the other major story, is at the beginning of the Torah portion. So we're working our way backwards. We start at the end, and now we're going to navigate back to the beginning. So let's talk about the story of the flood. I mentioned it briefly before. Humanity is corrupt. God washes everything away. And, uh, and, and life is rebuilt from those who survived on the ark. But here, yeah, Adina Maka, jump in. Oh, you know, didn't, uh, didn't they say that the giant survived the flood? Did the giant survive the flood? There was, there is a, um, a tradition that there was a giant that survived the flood, and his name was Og. Og the giant, it says, was holding on to the side of the, side of the ark. I guess, you know, he had a good grip. As a giant and all. Oh, is that in the Bible or just? No, that's, that's in the Midrash. That's in the Midrash. But it's in the Oral Torah. We, uh, we consider that to be sacred as well. So that's the tradition. So we have Og that survived. Nine people in total. Well, eight plus a giant. I guess, I guess he's just one person, even though he's quite large. And, uh, and that's it. Now, here's the thing. There, uh, there are so many deep ideas and secrets that are embedded in the, uh, in, the Torah port, in, in, in the Torah, including in the story. So let's jump now into text number two. I'm going to share with you in a moment in the booklets. It is on page number four. But let me explain a little background for this. The Torah is very specific in mentioning that the flood occurred in the 600th year of the life of Noah. So Noah was 600 years old when this flood happened. So it's on this that the Zohar, the Zohar is the primary work of Kabbalah, the Zohar makes a very dramatic statement. Now the Zohar, just to give you a little context, the Zohar, according to our tradition, was written close to 2,000 years ago by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. There are some other theories about the Zohar. I'm giving you the traditional accepted um, um, perspective on when the Zohar was compiled initially by Rabbi Shimbar Yochai. He was one of the Tanoim, somebody who lived around the era of the Second Temple. So we're talking about about 2,000 years ago. In the Zohar, which is the primary work of Kabbalah, it talks about a prediction. You know Nostradamus? You ever heard that name, Nostradamus? The guy who predicts a lot of things? Yeah. Um, so the Zohar on occasion does predictions. And in the context of the story of Noah, we have a prediction. So let me share my screen with you. And let's read text number two. Dr. Maxi, please read text number two from the Zohar. Take it away. In the 600th year of the sixth millennium, the supernal gates of wisdom will be opened and also the wellsprings of wisdom below. This will prepare the world for the seventh millennium like a person who prepares himself on Friday for Shabbat 
as the sun begins to wane, so it will be here. This is alluded to in the verse, in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Let me, thank you. Let me explain this. I'm keeping this text up because this is really important and this forms a major theme of tonight's class. So the Zohar predicts the following, that it will, just like in the 600th year of Noah's life, the wellsprings of, um, sorry, the, 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 rain, the, the heavens above opened up in rain and the wellsprings below also opened up. The waters were flooding from both sides in the times of the great flood of Noah, right? So it rained from above as well as the water from beneath the earth came pouring up and it was hit on both sides. So the Zohar says, so too will be in the 600th year of the sixth millennium. Now, what does that mean? The 600th year of the sixth millennium means in the year 5600, not 6600. That would be already in the seventh millennium. The sixth millennium is between the year 5000 and 6000. That's already the sixth millennium, okay? Um, remember, the year 6,000 is when you've already finished 6,000 years. So the 6th millennium is like the 6th century would be the 500. 6th millennium is the 5,000s. In the 600th year of the 6th millennium, that's the year uh, sorry, 5,600. Which, by the way, in case you're wondering and doing the math at home, the year 5,600 on the Jewish calendar, on the English calendar, is 1840. This is a prediction about the year 1840. Stay with me for a second. What's going to happen in that year, 1840, in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, 5600 in the Jewish count? What's, hap what's going to happen is the supernal gates of wisdom will be opened and the wellsprings of wisdom below, which essentially means like this. There's going to be a, a, a gushing forth of divine wisdom as well as a gushing forth of human wisdom. The... The, the, the steepest secrets of Torah from above will be revealed, as well as great breakthroughs in human wisdom, sciences, technology, etc. The Zohar continues. So, hold on. So let me check in and make sure everyone got me. Thumbs up if you got me. Make sense so far? Question. Yeah. So the waters below, is that from, I'm trying to find where there was in the Parsha, is that and the springs of the deep were closed, and the windows of the heavens, and the rain from the heavens were closed. That's when it was closed. So after the flood, that, the, the waters from below closed off so that it wasn't leaking the whole time and, and continued to flood the world. But you have to look toward the beginning of the portion. When the flood begins, we have rain from above and floods coming from beneath as well. So you're hit from both sides. There's water from above and water from below. So the Zohar says that in a similar way it will be in the future time, in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, 5600 or 1840, there's going to be a, a, um, an explosion of wisdom of, from above and an explosion of wisdom from below. So that's, that's the first statement. Then the Zohar says something else, and that is that this will prepare the world for the 7th millennium. Now, here's a, an extra bonus question. Or extra credit if you, if you know this answer. What happens in the seventh millennium? What does it mean? It's a it's a a, um, a preparation for the seventh millennium. What is the seventh millennium? Mashiach. Mashiach. It's the messianic era. In other words, we're guaranteed seventh millennium is Mashiach. Now, what what does that mean? So let me break this down. It's like the, the seven days of the week. So six days we work. The seventh is Shabbat. Six thousand years of this stuff, 
And the seventh millennium, or this, yeah, which is between the years 6,000 and 7,000, is the Messianic era. Now hold on. Now you're thinking, oh, so Mashiach is not going to come until the year 6,000. And we're 5782. All right, we, we, got, we, got a, we, got a, we got a minute or two. Understand this, as I jump in. This is what the Zohar continues. That just like it is, um, you know what, let me share the screen so you guys can see it yourselves, black and white over here. Um, like a person, you see that where my, where my mouse is? Like a person who prepares himself on Friday for Shabbat as the sun begins to wane, so will be here. Which means the following. On, we, we don't take Shabbat in only after Shabbat begins. We take it in a little bit early. And even before we take Shabbat in early, early, we light candles 18 minutes before sunset. And even before the 18 minutes, we're already preparing ourselves. We're tasting from the soup. We're tasting the kugel. We're tasting, right? You're, you're tasting the gefilte fish. It's called toyamech haim zochel. You taste a little bit. Um, of, the, uh, of the Shabbos food. So the same thing is true, the Zohar is saying, of the Messianic era. Before the Messianic era comes, first of all, it can come in, it can, we can take Shabbos early. The Messianic era can come in early before the year 6000, number one. Number two, even before that, we're going to start tasting, tasting the flavor of Mashiach. And what is Mashiach associated with? What is the Messianic era associated with? This explosion of wisdom. So guess what? Already from the 600th year of the 6th millennium, there will already be like a, a portent, like a, 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 a taste of Mashiach, of the wisdom above, the wisdom below, there's going to be an explosion. And as the Zohar says, it's all alluded to in the verse about the 600th year of Noah's life, that the fountains of the deep were broken up, the windows of the heaven were opened, and uh, in, the same, in the same way it's going to be by us. Now, what I want to do is kind of break this down. So what actually happens in 1840? That's the big question. Like, what, what is, because the year 5600 in the Jewish year is 1840. What happens in 1840? So here's what happens in 1840. 1840 is smack dab in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. So it's absolutely the Industrial Revolution. Now, according to, I'm not a historian. You know that by now. I'm a rabbi that, you know, I know enough history to make me slightly dangerous, but not that dangerous. But um, the Industrial Revolution really transformed the world, society. It transformed nations. It transformed quality of life. It transformed life as we know it. It ushered in the 1840s. Um, you know what? I'm going to share with you. I'm going to share with you some innovations, technological advances that happened in and around the year 1840, already starting a few decades beforehand, the battery, the electric light, steam locomotive, camera, stethoscope, cement, matches, microphone, typewriter, sewing machines, mechanical reaper, corn planter, someone's got to plant corn, telegraph, mechanical calculator, stamps for letters, I'm not sure what other kind of stamps there are, anesthesia, that's a good thing to have, that's 1845 in case you're wondering what year that was uh, invented, Anesthesia, antiseptics, also important. Glider, as in an airplane. Well, I'm pretty sure it was just a glider at that point. Um, in 1854, that is. Um, I'm thinking like the balsam wood ones. Remember those little kits that we used to get? Yep. All right. And then they became foam, and they never worked. They had a little propellers. You threw it once, snap off, and you're done for. All right. Um, pasteurization. Ooh, that's good. Was that Louis? Louis Pasteur? He, uh, yeah, that was him. 1856. Washing machine. 1858. By the way, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Front loaders, 1858. Um, that was a joke. Plastic, 1862. We might want to take that one back. I'm kidding. I'm, I know we all need plastic, but really, let's think about plastic for a second. I'm not anti-plastic, but I'm not pro-plastic either. Maybe I am anti-plastic. I'll let you know by the end of the class. Traffic lights, that's important. People, but until um, 1868, I don't know if you guys know this, this is a fact. Until 1868, when people came to an intersection, they just stopped, and that was it. That's how life ended. That's, they just got to an intersection, they didn't know who should go first, and that was it. There they stayed. So thank God for the traffic light in 1868. Telephone, 1876, and we haven't put it down since. Guys, hold on one second, I'm getting something important, joking. Um, carpet washer, 1876, and Facebook, 2000 and joking, joking about Facebook or 19, when was Facebook invented, do we know? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, here is the deal, here is the deal. Lots of technology spawned between, and all of those that I mentioned, like groundbreaking technological advancements, all between the years 1800 and 1876. The 1840, the Industrial Revolution, marks a watershed moment in human progress. It is a moment in which, be, it's when just everything shifts, the ability to, to mass produce things, moving from farms to factories. It's an incredible shift amongst the landscape. Cities change, cityscapes change, nations change, wealth changes, for better or for worse. Um, the, the, the possibilities are opened up. So if you look, if you consult historians, they will tell you that the greatest human advancements happen beginning with the Industrial Revolution, and that kind of creates a trajectory of, of advancement that kind of goes exponentially up. There's kind of like somewhat of, you know, there's, there's, there is obviously advancements in, that, are, that are created throughout history, right? You have a steady up, uptick of, it, of, 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 um, of innovation. But from the Industrial Revolution, things accelerate with an incredible pace. It turns way up. Well, that's 1840, so if you're wondering, what the Zohar might, well, probably did mean when it said that in the year uh, 5600, 1840, the wellsprings of below will open up. That means human wisdom will uh, proliferate. Well, Industrial Revolution and all these advancements certainly fits the bill. Well, what happened spiritually? Because at the same time, the Zohar says, not only will the waters from below rise, the waters from above will come down. And that, the Zohar says, means that supernal wisdom will be opened up. But what happens in 1840? You probably know the answer. And that is Kabbalah and Hasidut, the mysticism, the mystical teachings of Torah, begin to be shared in a widespread fashion. Whereas before, let me um, wind back a half a step. Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism was always a piece of Torah. In fact, one of the most ancient books of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism that we have, is called Sefer Yitzira, which means the Book of Formation. It tells you how to make a golem, for example. It tells you how to, make, uh, how to create some forms of life. That was written, according to our tradition, by Abraham. Some say Adam. But at least by Abraham. That's going back a few years. 36, 3700 years. That's going back a long time. So here's my point. Kabbalah and mystical thought was always a part of Judaism, but it was always on the down low. It's like, meet me by the forest, by the third tree from the left, <coughs> and we're going to have a secret study group of Kabbalah. That's the way it was. You were not accepted into the group of mystics unless you were proficient in all areas of Torah scholarship, unless you were pious and righteous, and although those are synonymous, maybe you need to be both for some, somehow. So you needed to be a very special person to be admitted 
into that secret group of mystics. And now, it's but a Google away. But let's, let's rewind how we got there. In, in and around the 1800s is when Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, mystical, the, the, the soul of Torah, really begins to open up. And when I say open up, what I mean is it begins to be taught and shared in a broad manner, not in a very tight and selective manner. It was always taught, it was always there, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't opened up like it was. When was the book of Tanya, for example, published? I'm glad you asked. 1796. In 1796, there was, um, 1796 was the publication of the book of Tanya. And that's when things explode. That's when Jewish mystical thought really kicks off. That's when, you know, this, this analysis and examination of the human soul, the human condition, spirituality, purpose, really begins to become a mainstream conversation. The book Torah R and Lukutei Torah, which are books of mystical thought arranged according to the Torah portions, which for the first time took the deepest mystical ideas and arranged it according to the Torah portions so you could study a story in the Torah and then match it with the mystical angle. Like for example, this week's Torah portion, Noach. You can study the Torah portion, the literal meaning, and the soul of Torah with this perfect companion, with these deep mystical insights that, have, that were penned and edited and arranged and organized in a methodical fashion. This was unheard of to have such access, published access to these gems of, of, of Judaism. And when was that published? Again, around the year 1840. Torah uh, Ara was published in 1837. Torah Ara is on the first few books of the Torah. Look at the Torah is the second half. It just has two different titles. All published by, all written by, authored by the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, the same author of Tanya. Um, and Look at the Torah on the second half of the Torah was published in 1848. The point is, it's around the 1800s, the mid-1800s, that Jewish mystical thought begins to explode in ways that are unprecedented to the point that today you can study Kabbalah anywhere. And you know what the greatest proof is? The greatest proof is you walk into a synagogue that's not a Hasidic synagogue. You walk into a synagogue that's not uh, a so-called Orthodox synagogue. And if you listen and you pay attention, there's Kabbalah and Hasidus. It's all there. It's all being shared. It's all being taught. Not always, not by everyone, but very often, it's mainstreamed. Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy has been mainstreamed in Judaism. I, I'll, I'll share with you this. Now, this is something that happens before the 1800s. This goes back to the 1600s. Um, there was a group of mystics in Israel, the Arizal and others, who would gather Friday nights and they would pray. They created a mystical formula of prayer. They composed Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz. He composed a special prayer. And to this day, in every synagogue, I can't say every, I haven't been in every synagogue, but in synagogues around the world, those are the, that's the prayer formula that's done Friday nights. L'chadodi, the, the Friday night service, it's all arranged by the mystics. And it's something that's become mainstream. So I know that's before the 1800s, but it's from the 1800s that it really explodes. So just to tie everything together and then bring it back to our discussion. So what, what we see here is that the Zohar, written thousands of years ago, predicts that it's going to be around the mid-1800s that human wisdom will expand like never before and divine wisdom will be expanded 
like never before. And so it comes to pass. What we see here is that there's a connection between human wisdom and divine wisdom, between Torah and Kabbalah and science and technology. This raises some questions. What is that connection? What is the connection between these breakthroughs? The spiritual breakthrough, breakthrough, the divine breakthrough, the Torah breakthrough, and the scientific, technological, innovation breakthroughs that happen um, on a human perspective. Why are they linked? Are they really linked? What's going on? How does it make sense? And all of this is circling around our central question in today's classes, which is, is faith and science linked? Is Torah and science linked? Or are they separate? Um, or, are they, or are they separate? So to understand this, to understand this, we're going to look at a very interesting text. Text number four. Before I show you what that text is, I need to explain the following. Judaism is called a religion, but it's very different than others religions. I would say Judaism is a so-called religion because it's less of a religion as it is a way of life. Um, and my definition of religion, and this may not be everyone's definition of religion, so apologies if that's the case, my definition of religion is a faith, a belief system. Judaism has a belief system, certainly, but it's less about the belief and more about the action. Judaism is driven by 613 mitzvot, do's and don'ts, that were 248 do's, 365 don'ts, that are meant to guide our life. Now, of course, they're underpinned by philosophy, they're underpinned by teachings, you have to study in order to know what to do, but Judaism is all about action. In a religious context, in which action is not so emphasized, in other words, in a, it, when, if we're talking about a religion that's not Judaism, pick, any other, uh, pick another religion, right, that's not Judaism, that's, a, that's more about faith than practice, it's more about belief than practice, so it's, it's easy to go from there to a place where um, science and the natural world is not that important. Because anyway, the religion is about faith and ideals and love and right, it's all about the, these higher um, concepts. It's not about you know, what's going on, on the ground as much. And so what's on the ground is, is less relevant. But Judaism, that's all about tangible action. Judaism is about, you know how do you connect with God? Take what looks like a lemon, take a tall branch, and give it a shake. And you're thinking, really? No meditation here? Are we not supposed to be levitating or something? No. Shake a branch. Shake a branch. Shake a branch. Wrap your arm in leather straps. Kidding me? I'm, I'm, you really want me to do this? L legit? Yeah? You serious? Eat a stale, crunchy, round Wafer, very large wafer that comes in a very large box. And you'll be free. Really? Legit? You're kidding me, right? Like I'm not going to like uh, fast for 40 days? No. You're going to eat a crunchy um, cracker. You're kidding me. Right? It's crazy. It's Meshuga. Judaism. <coughs> That's Judaism. Not the Meshuga part, but Judaism is all about the, the action. Well, maybe also sometimes. Yeah. At least the people. No. So anyway, here's the thing. You got, you, got the, um, you got the action that's such a big focus, and thus it, 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 Judaism is inseparable from the natural universe. Judaism, Jewish practice, is inseparable from science. Okay, let me break it down very simply. 
And I'm going to get to this soon, but I can't hold back from saying it right now. I'll share with you soon a letter from the Rebbe about this, but so it'll be redundant later. But look, you can't, you can't. Stargazing and blessing the new moon. Right. Oh, that was the example I was going to give. You can't calculate Rosh Chodesh without being an astronomer. No, no, no. I know what you're going to say. No, I have. I buy the Jewish calendar. I got the. I got the Chabad calendar. I got the. I got the. You know, I got the Jewish calendar. How'd they get it? How'd they get it? How'd they know? Someone was able to come up with astronomical calculations. Not come up with. Was able to figure that stuff out. Boom. You can't have Judaism without science. So again, if it's about love, I don't know if you need science there. You love, love God, have faith. in even even the, the bris is done on the eighth day, which is when the the a baby's blood begins to coagulate. There you go. Them, they don't have that factor in their blood. There you go. As far as I know. <sighs> Listen, in, in Torah studies, we can all be doctors. That's the way it works. Uh, you know, we can all be. <laughs> I'm kidding. So here's the point. Yeah, I, I've heard that. I've heard that as well. But here's the idea: you can't practice Judaism without having a firm connection with the natural universe, with technology and science and stuff. You, you can't. It doesn't exist, right? So when you're dealing with a faith that's all about faith, so you can say the world is nothing, the world doesn't exist, the world is irrelevant, faith, God, right? But in Judaism, you can't separate Judaism from science, from the world. It's, 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 a, it's an integral part. Let's look at text four. I'm going to share my screen. Let's take a look-see at what um, doctor... Uh, there we go. Okay, skipping that because I paraphrased that. Oh, we got a little chart there of Industrial Revolution. All right. I hope you saw that super fast. Let's go. When you watch the YouTube, don't worry. You can watch the broadcast. You can slow it down and pause it. That's why God created pause buttons. Let's do text number four. Doctor, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. Okay? Um, here's what he says. Tertullian said... Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is an ancient um, religious philosopher. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What agreement is there between academy and church? For this Latin church father, the gulf between them was unbridgeable. This assertion is, one, is of one piece with his famous statement. Good luck to me pronouncing this. Credo qua qua absurdi absurdum est. Now, here's the deal. That sounds absurdum, honestly, the way I'm reading it. But anyway, that was his, uh, that was his phrase. He believed be, that he believed because it was absurd. Listen to this. He believed because it was absurd. In other words, the foundation of faith is lack of science almost. Such anti-rationalism never found a warm and hospitable reception among classical Jewish thinkers. Think about the classical Jewish thinkers. Who, who's the cl most classic Jewish medieval scholar out there? I'll answer for you, just because I know that you're thinking this. Maimonides. And Maimonides. Who's Maimonides? The philosopher, the astronomer, the physician. It's inseparable in Judaism. It's inseparable. You, they go hand in hand. Maimonides, Mulanagid, Ibn Ezra, Barbanel, Ramchal, the Volnagon, the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe of Joseph Soloveitchik. They all were scientists. They were all individuals who knew the natural world. It's inseparable. It comes together. Now, let's go a step further. And this is something that we explained in a previous course called Judaism's Gifts of the World. Not only, is, do we, not only does Judaism give room for science because it deals with the world, it's Judaism that gives rise to the concept of science. Let me explain. 
in a world in which everything is random, in a world of driven by pagan ideals, remember this idea that we, we had this in a previous course, in a world that's driven by a belief that everything is random, that the world is a product of warring gods, that we're fighting over some other demon or angel or force or woman or whatever it is, in such a world where everything is a product of chaos, why are we even exploring the patterns and the laws of the universe? What patterns? What law? Everything's random. Everything is haphazard. But when you believe, Bereshus bar that God created the world, God, a wise God, created a world, there's purpose, etc. Now you can believe that there's going to be some sort of symmetry in there. If the world is truly haphazard, why are you even looking for symmetry? Why even bother? But when you believe that there is an architect, now you can believe that there is a design and a design that can be um, discerned by looking. Let me share with you this text, text number five from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who makes this point in one of his books. The account, text 5, the account of creation in the first chapter of Genesis is stunningly original, quite unlike any other in antiquity. There are no contending forces, no battles of the gods, no capricious spirits. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God is not in nature, but above it, transcending it and ordering it, ordering it according to his word. Nature has no will or set of wills of its own. This was an immense intellectual leap. In other words, Judaism's framing of this. If God created the world, then it is, in principle, intelligible. The mists of irrationality have been dispelled. Before Judaism, before monotheism, there is no, we say in, in, in Hebrew, in Talmudic uh, uh, jargon, there's no havamina, there's no thought to even um, postulate, to even, to even uh, hypothesize that there should be order. Why should there be order? In a world of, in, in, in something that's a product of randomness, why would you even look for a pattern? What kind of pattern? Who, who's making the pattern? You have all these different gods that are fighting. Who, who's, who's making the pattern? What kind of pattern? What are you looking at? But when you believe in monotheism, there's one God who stands above everything, who's designing everything for a purpose. So now you can say, let's take a look. So not only does Judaism, op not only does Judaism, because it's so, world earthly centric allow for science but Judaism drives the very notion now you ask a scientist oh do you know that you're that that the foundation of science is monotheism they'll look at you like you're crazy because we're no they're not thinking about it that way but when you think about it the origins of science begin with a perspective that there's something to look at and where does that notion begin you know you can't think of something that you can't think of aha uh -huh. you see what I did there yeah you're with me you don't know what you don't know that's what we call a chiddush. A chiddush is a, a chiddush means a novelty, a new idea. A new idea is something that brings something, an idea that no one ever thought of into the world. Because if you thought of it, guess what? It's not a chiddush. It's not a new idea. The idea that there was one God creating the world with a purpose, with a design, is Judaism's idea. That spawns the concept of scientific discovery. It doesn't matter what science says, what spawns science. This is what spawns science. Anyway, so that's that. Now moving on, we have also this idea that it works both ways. Judaism spawns science, but science, or faith, if you will, spawns science. Science also spawns faith. So I'm going to give you some facts, little factoids for your Wednesday night. Always a good time, 8.18 on, on a Wednesday night, to throw some figures at you. You ready for this? 
The human body contains 100 trillion cells. How do I know? I've counted them all. Joking. 100 trillion cells. Okay? Each cell contains a nucleus with two complete cells of the human genome. And every human genome contains more than 3 billion bits of information. Okay? I hope you did that math. That's a lot of bits of information. That's a lot of stuff going around in those 100 trillion cells, right? It's almost the amount of money that uh, the United States is in debt. But I digress. Anyway, now I'm just joking. So here's the point. Here's the point. The human body is so complex. The human physiology is so magnificent, it is absolutely stunning. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-boggling. Accident? Like the story of Rambam, story of Maimonides. I'm going to say it again. You've heard me say it a thousand times. thousand and one. Arguing with a philosopher about uh, God, yes, God, no God. This fellow was an atheist. He leaves the room. Maimonides, see, it, was in, it was in this guy's uh, office or whatever it was. He, he, the guy walks out. Maimonides sees he, he had started, this fellow, who was a philosopher and a poet, he had started a poem and had it finished it. <clears throat> Maimonides finishes the poem and then takes the inkwell and spills it at the corner of the paper. The guy walks in, notices the paper, he reads it, oh, he gives Maimonides a hug, his friend gives him a hug, he says, thank you for finishing it, it's amazing, magnificent. Rambam says, Maimonides says, why are you thanking me? I didn't finish it, I didn't finish it. I spilled the ink, and it uh, just formed those letters. He says, are you kidding me? You think I'm, <laughs> sugar? What, the odds of spilling the ink and having it go formally, those letters in that precise sequence are, 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 Zero. And my mind says, and you expect me to believe that by happenstance, this magnificently designed world came into being? Just think about the human body. 100 trillion cells, two full copies in every cell of the human genome, each of which contains 3 billion bits of information. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. So science itself, what we know about the universe, the macrocosm, the microcosm points to something higher than itself. Okay. So clearly, Judaism is not at odds with science. Judaism needs the natural world to function. It's all about the natural world. Judaism spawns a search for patterns. When you find the patterns, you go back to some faith-based understanding that there's something higher that may have, that we believe created these patterns. Thus, Torah is not at odds with science. At the same time. Not at the same time. No. I'm not, uh, I'm not qualifying that. Let's jump in to text number six, where the Rebbe speaks about the close connection that exists between Torah and science. I'm going to share this with you. Let's read it together. Take a look at this wonderful letter. There's five points. In the Hebrew, it's broken down Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, five points. In the English, they didn't, point, they didn't put numbers, but understand that there's five different points here. So number one, science can be understood from within Torah study. An intelligent, so let me explain. When you study Torah, if you really study Torah, you will also learn science. You'll also learn mathematics. You can't, there are certain tractates of the Talmud you cannot study without, without mathematics. You just can't. It's not possible. Science can be understood from within Torah study. An, intelli an, an intelligent person, can understand everything about a building by looking at a blueprint. And the Torah is the blueprint of 
blueprint of the world, as described in the Talmud, Brachot 8a. Through his Torah study, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was able to determine the duration of a snake's pregnancy. Well, there you go. There you go. Likewise, as it states in the Midrash, Shmuel and Rabbi Yehoshea were able to learn all about astronomy through their Torah study. So Torah, because it's the blueprint of creation, if you really study Torah, you'll have other wisdom that you learn in that process. Um, in case you're wondering about the, uh, the gestation period of a snake, yeah? It says a bizarre Talmudic tale over there. Join me tomorrow night for Curious Cells of the Talmud too, as we explore other bizarre Talmudic tales. And we have a great time doing it and applying those lessons to our lives. Trust me, you will love it. In fact, I believe that tomorrow night's class is about the gestation period of a snake. Am I wrong? Am I right? Time will tell. I'll let you know soon. Um, okay, let's take a look at the letter as it continues. Number two, there are cases where the Torah explicitly commands us to study secular topics. For example, the commandment to calculate the Jewish calendar, which, as, as, as mentioned before, you cannot understand the Jewish calendar without astronomy, without, without a background in astronomy. Let's continue. When a person, point three, when a person is in a place where Torah study is forbidden, they are obligated to divert their mind to other kinds of wisdom, such as business and or other forms of wisdom. So that, I'll, I'll tell you what the third point is. Um, typically, we're meant to study Torah. So if you have a, a free moment, study Torah. But there's some times where, let's say, you're in the restroom and you can't study Torah in the bathroom because it's not, it's not appropriate. Um, so it's a great time to study science. It's a great time to read up the encyclopedia. It's a great time to study other things as well. Let's continue. Secular study is permitted when one lacks the secular knowledge required to properly understand their Torah study or to perform a mitzvah. Like Rav, who apprenticed with a shepherd for 18 months. There you go. Why? to understand what's going on with the animals, what, what constitutes a mum, a blemish in an animal, etc. This kind of secular research is not considered Torah study, nor is it considered a mitzvah, but it is considered a preparatory step that facilitates Torah mitzvah. So what the Rebbe is saying is sometimes secular study can enhance, or not enhance necessarily, but can um, facilitate, facilitate, that's the, facilitate, that's the word, yeah, facilitate Torah mitzvah, like you need that stepping stone to get there, like uh, we said before, and like we're saying now. Finally, academic proficiency to the degree necessary no more for earning a livelihood or when one uses academics themselves as a profession, this is considered a necessary means for a permissible end, which means, again, one is, um, the, the context of this letter is really about um, how we allocate our time between Torah study and secular study, secular sciences. So the Rebbe is saying that there's, first of all, you can learn sciences from Torah. You need to learn certain sciences in the context of Torah, which means they can be integrated. Like imagine, 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 imagine a school, right? Stud teaches Talmud and mathematics, but in an integrated way, right? You're learning mathematics in the context of Talmud, and maybe Talmud in the context of, of mathematics, a very holistic way of learning. So the bottom line is the Rebbe is explaining how in what context Secular study is, is connected with Torah study. Number one, the first point is you can learn it from Torah itself. Number two, you need to learn it, secular studies in order to understand Torah. Number three, sometimes you can't study Torah, so you naturally study secular study. Number three, um, sometimes you need to study some, some secular wisdom and science in order to get yourself to a place where you can understand the piece of Torah. And finally, to earn a living, <laughs> you gotta sometimes study 
you know, uh, depending on the job, you got to study secular wisdom and science, etc. Okay, so what's the bottom line? The bottom line here is that Torah is not Judaism. Torah is not anti-science. It's not against what we would call secular studies. Even though Torah, of course, is the, the gold standard of study, Torah embraces other forms of wisdom. Now, we know this based on what I said before, all these great, uh, great scholars that studied, that studied secular wisdom at the same time. And this is going to be where we do qualify it at the same time. There are some concerns, and the concern is primarily in the way that you study secular sciences, because sometimes secular sciences are taught in a way that precludes the notion of something higher. You with me on this? Sometimes science is taught. This could be medicine or other sciences and technology and other types of innovation. Sometimes it's presented by individuals. I'm not talking about the field itself, but individuals might present it in a way that has a very not, let's just say not Jewish flavor to it. And so therefore, one must be discerning about what they're learning, who they're learning from, what context they're learning, to make sure, at least from a Jewish perspective, that we're still studying in a kosher fashion, right? Now, this is true. This is true in every area of life, right? Every area of life has the potential to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Corrupted, right? So, for example, a story that I've told before, the Rebbe was once walking down the street in Crown Heights, and a little girl met him on the street, and she said she wanted to know the Rebbe's take on nuclear energy. Is it good or is it not good? Maybe she wasn't that little. But she was a... And the Rebbe said to her, in your kitchen, is there a knife? And uh, she says, yeah. So he says, is the knife good or not good? Is it good or bad? So she thought about it and she said, well, depends what you use it for. The Rebbe said the same thing is true with any technology, with any innovation in life. It depends what you use it for. So nuclear energy, is it good or not good? Well, it, if, it's, if it powers cities and, and, and improves people's lives, sure it could be good. But if it destroys lives, it's probably not good. I understand. Question of who, oh, or when. I'm not going to get into that right now. But the point is, anything can be used for good or for not good. Think about Facebook. Facebook's been in the news lately. I don't know if you're paying attention to this. There's a big story with Facebook this week. It's been going on for a little bit. It really blew up this week. I'm not talking about the outage. Um, when was it, yesterday or two days ago? I'm not talking about the outage. I'm talking about what's going on with this whistleblower. So it turns out Facebook and Instagram may not be so, uh, so healthy for children, right? And or adults as well. And the question is, so what, what do we do about it? There's no question. There's no question that technology, the internet, social media has done wonders in a good way to bring people together, to give opportunities to study. We're studying right now, right? Online, we have 23 individuals that are studying together, Torah, from around the country, right? Different, different places, different time zones, all studying simultaneously Torah. This is something, can you imagine Rabbi Akiva? Can you imagine going back a few thousand years, Rabbi Akiva, if he had Zoom? You kidding me? <laughs> this is like off the hook. He could teach, you know, in his sandals, wherever he was. Boom! Around the, around the globe. It would be incredible. These are things we take for granted that were unheard of not that long ago. 
In our own lifetimes, it was unheard of. And it's, we're doing it now. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword. Or it's got there's two sides to every coin. Technology can be used for negativity. I, I'm not, I'm not going to specify the negativity because use your imagination. Technology can be used for negative. And so what's the moral of the story? We started the class by asking the question, you know, is Torah pro-science? The Zohar seems to say yes at a time when there's going to be an explosion of supernal wisdom, spiritual wisdom. There's also an explosion of human wisdom. Seems like they're both working together and they're complementing each other. But then we have the strange story of the tower. The tower, people are innovating, they're creating, they're building a tower, and God shuts it down. God doesn't like technology. God doesn't like innovation. God doesn't like skyscrapers. What's going on? But didn't, but didn't they do the tower against God? That was the whole problem. Good, and that's the answer. Depends what you use your technology for. What are you using the technology for? And that's the, that's the point of today's class. To Judaism, Torah, faith, whatever you want to call it, whatever is on that side, of course, is pro-science, embraces science. But with the caveat, what are you using the science or technology for? What's the end game? Where does it lead to? Does it lead to bettering lives? Does it lead to lifting up lives and improving spirits? Does it lead to negativity? Does it lead to embracing God or denying and fighting against God? So why'd they build a tower? I said we were gonna get to it at the end of the class. I'm about to share with you something that will blow your mind. Guaranteed will blow your mind, okay? And now, thank you for staying with me. <laughs> now prepare for your mind to be blown. I'm going to skip a bunch of texts that I've summarized outside. And we're going to go straight to text number 12. This is from Rabbi Yonasan Eibshitz, who lived in the 16 and 1700s. Listen to what he writes. Why did they build a tower as follows? This is what the people really wanted to do. They wanted to establish civilization on the moon. Okay. Folks, he wrote this in the 1700s. They wanted to establish civilization on the moon where they would be spared from a future flood. They originally thought to get there by way of a vessel. But how would they lift the vessel that the, and defy the law of gravity? So they thought of building a tower that would rise to a space so high where gravity doesn't rule. From there, they would be able to fly away with their vessel to the moon. Now, now, he wrote this in the 1700s. It's black and white. This is where it is. Teferit Yonatan, Bereshit 821. You can look it up. You can look up Safaria, whatever. You know, I'm sure it's... This is a legit source. I remember when I was a kid, I learned this source. It, it's, it's a legitimate source. It's yeah, a wild... You have, to, you have to agree with it. No, no, you don't have to agree with it at all. But here's the point. I mean, this, it looks like nonsense to me. Uh, hold on. Sorry. This explanation and others point to what drove them. What drove them was the desire to get away from God. They wanted to escape consequence. They wanted to escape any sort of responsibility. They wanted to go to the moon, and on the moon, there couldn't be a flood. They would be safe. What's the objective? Not exploration, not scientific discovery, not improving life, but escaping responsibility, explain, ex escaping morality, escaping spiritual purpose. And thus, and this is one explanation, obviously, of many, of hundreds and hundreds, whether you love it or whether you don't love it, that's irrelevant. All of the explanations have a, the same thread. Why did God shut it down? Because ultimately it was done 
for an unhealthy purpose, which reminds us of today's lesson. And here's the lesson. Science is incredible. Science is a gift. The Zohar says that there will come, that there will. first totalitarian state. One second, one second. Steve, hold on, hold on. Let's hold off on all questions until the end of the class. Let me wrap this up so everyone can, so those that need to go can go, and then we'll take, uh, we'll take questions. Let me, let me wrap this up. So this reminds us of today's central theme, which is Torah is pro-science. Science, human wisdom, and divine wisdom work hand in hand. One leads to the other. Divine wisdom leads to human wisdom. Human wisdom, human wisdom leads to divine wisdom. Everything works together in harmony, provided, provided, provided that, every, that, that it's done in a way that is cognizant of the source. When you lose that connection to the source, that's when things can go awry. When I say source, what do I mean? I mean God and, and absolute truth. You could say on a basic level, when Facebook slash Instagram loses a sense of public safety, when they don't care that young people are measuring their lives and their value based on someone else's glossy, paid-for, made-for-Insta picture, and, and they're self-harming because of that, when they don't realize that that's a responsibility, then we failed. Then we as a society have failed. Because we've taken technology, made it about profits, and forgotten any higher standard. Today's class is simply this. And divine, by divine providence, it's, it's in the week where everyone's having this conversation. This class is all about the responsibilities of human wisdom. Sure, knock yourself out, learn, develop, innovate, no problem. You can even make money, on, you can even make money from it. But don't forget your higher responsibility. Never separate the two wisdoms. Never separate Torah from science because the moment that happens is the moment that things can really go downhill. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope you enjoyed this kickoff session of Torah Studies 5782, the Torah portion of Noah, and it reminds us to innovate and also to remain plugged in to a higher source. To quote those Hebrew national ads, we answer to a higher authority. All right, thank you again for joining me, and we will now take questions and comments for a few minutes before we officially close it out. All right. Scott. Pleasure. All right, questions, comments? Uh, Rabbi. Uh, yes. Could, 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 could Babel be thought of as a, a desire that everyone be the same? And yeah. There, and there be no diversity? Yeah, there is, um, there, there is that uh, thought. It, it says, uh, let, us build a, let, let us build a city and a tower to make a name for ourselves, that's certainly totalitarian. So, so the, we be scattered, which is, is anti-diversity. Right, yeah, so, yeah. So isn't this the first example of totalitarianism? It could be. There, there, is some, there is some discussion about that, that they wanted to do away with diversity. And, and thus, yeah, and, and, and um, yeah, you call it fascism, totalitarianism, etc. It's, it's about disregarding the individual. And God says, no, I want individuality. And therefore, you're going to separate into different nations, different languages, because I love diversity. That's, that, there, there is that angle. I don't know if it fits into today's, this, maybe we can like shoehorn it into the way we're looking at this as well, where you, ideologies can be corrupted when it becomes, I, I, everything can, be, can fit in. But I, I wanted to keep, the, to focus on this angle of the story, where it's about, 
you know, a, a desire for something, to technology, innovation, creation, that is just going in a, in a negative direction because it's trying to get away from being tethered to something higher than itself. Look, I think in our own lives, we can all relate to this. We can all relate to when our ambition gets the better of us and we start forget, we forget about our values. When our you know, other desires get a hold of us and we forget where we came from. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, the, it's the challenge of life. But the bottom line is that we need to study, we need to innovate, we need to create. God needs us to transform this world into a better, better place. But let's never forget the purpose. If we forget the purpose, then we've, uh, then we've simply dropped the ball. Okay. Uh, there's so yes. many um, questions in this, in this Torah portion, and because it was my bar mitzvah mm. portion, I thought I did it extensively. Nice. However, um, and I think it's really, it's, it's interesting that in one sense, the Bonashalom wants us to follow rules the way he established it. He, she, it established it. Okay? On the other hand, which you made very evident tonight, is that 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 science has a lot to do with this. And um, I, I don't normally uh, issue to following science and Torah. Because I, you know, if God said so, I'm okay with that. Okay? And, and the easiest answer to anything is God said so? It's such an easy way to to live. Okay, what I find really interesting is that, and you mentioned all the innovations post 1840. Um, uh, that you know that because uh, I come from a musical uh, perspective of Judaism, uh, you know, at the turn of the of the 19th to the 20th century, there was this amazing musician who was still considered by Jewish musicians to be the most knowledgeable and really genius person um, in, in, in Jewish uh, uh, prayer. Uh, he took a Thomas Edison uh, recording machine and took it all over the the east and recorded the way people prayed uh which is what i'm about but anyway um he he, he made an, an incredible study his name was abraham speed idelson and um and, and he made a chart ultimately musical chart which those of you who can read music, if you ever want to sleep at night and you can't do it, read the book. But, um, but he made a, a comparison of how all the various Sephardi uh, Jews prayed, comparing to the Ashkenazi Jews that prayed, and, and proved that it all comes down to one source in a very simplistic nice. language. And what's amazing is that everything we have been doing uh, from time immemorial, because those areas have not had not, up until today had never been exposed to Western civilization. 
So this guy comes and he travels all over this area. He wrote, he, he basically records how they dolphin and how they lamed and came up with a proof positive that it all comes down to one factor. Nice. And, and that use technology. That, yeah, there you go. That's amazing. And use technology, which is what you're, you're, you're I love that. And now we know what to do when we can't sleep. There we go. That we have a connection to the way Ethiopians have, have dominated for thousands of years and the way people from Oman and the way people from Persia, uh, from, from, you know, everywhere in the world, from Italy. And, and he made this amazing research. There you go. It's amazing to see. The, the hand of the Ribbonashel Allah in everything that we do, that is all can be, it, it can all be just wrapped and tied into one gift. That, it's a gift. Perfect. That's Good. the gift we've got. Awesome. Thank I, you for taking up so much time. No, no worries. No worries. There, I also want to mention, I mean, that ties into the idea of diversity and, and, and monolithicism. The idea of there's diversity, but there's still a thread of oneness within the diversity. But there's another innovation that I didn't mention, and that is, um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but bo Boolean algebra, Boolean algebra, Boolean, Boolean algebra, which is, which leads to the possibility of computers, is also innovated right around the mid-1800s. So we're talking about that, a time period when just technology explodes and it's leading to all this innovation. And the core idea is we got to be careful because it's very powerful. And the question is not how powerful it is, it's what do we do with that, Matt? Um, so you, you mentioned that. I'll repeat it if you can. Tor study, I guess that Tor knowledge has now been spreading ever since those waters opened up. That now reminded me of, I don't know if you've been following, I guess, the, the notion of the simulation theory. That's really big in tech circles, programmer circles, that there's a that this world is basically a simulation and there's a person who created nice the simulation i'm going to repeat this yeah and when i hear that i'm like okay that's the gateway to the notion of there is a god that right that the first opening step so matt is saying that if the popular theory nowadays amongst um where's this theory like tech people tech people and is simulation what's it called simulation what theory simulation? Simulation theory, that this whole world, this whole universe is a simulation, and that there's a creator that created, and it's all a simulation. Sounds like the Matrix, a little bit. Sort of? It's, it's kind of similar to that. We're all part of the simulation. And Matt's saying, kind of sounds like God, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of, kind of a fancy way of saying God created the universe. Yeah, somebody created a simulation. It's just different language saying the same thing, or maybe the same exact language. By the way, because I know you know this, um, the Matrix are coming out with another film in December. You guys know this? You now, you now know this? Now you know this? There were three films, now they're coming out with a fourth. Keanu Reeves et al. Here's the point. I will be doing, mark my words, the Kabbalah of the Matrix in December. A trilogy of my own, not the fourth one yet. A trilogy on the Kabbalah of the Matrix. All right? So that's the story. You heard it here first. It's going to happen. Get ready. The blue pill or the red pill, my friends? Donna, jump in. So, um, you know, the... Matt, the blue logic is Aristotelian. It, it, goes, it goes far, far back, much further than the 18th century. 
Okay. So Judaism's gifts to the world, and we're obligated to use them for good because uh, we're obligated to be the light unto the nations. And it's not only about what others are going to say about us. It's like, be nice because everyone's looking. It's more than that. It's because, and maybe this is what you mean, it's because we have responsibility. We all, not only Jews, everyone has a responsibility to tend God's garden. It's a responsibility. This, this entire conversation reminds me of something that Rabbi Tzvi Freeman spoke about when he was here for a Shabbaton a few years ago. This was back in the old building. The, uh, the little house on a prairie. I mean, the house on Ponce. Um, where he spoke, it was on Tubishvat, which is the birthday of the trees. Right? Jewish uh, Arbor Day, is that what it's called? Anyway, um, Ann Arbor is a different place. So he spoke about the environment and how the messaging around the environment is so wrong. It's so skewed. It's become a political issue, a right or left issue. Imagine if the language was, imagine if the concept was framed differently. God, you believe in God? Yeah. God created this world? Yeah. You got to take care of God's creation? Yeah. Done. You with me on this? You with me on this? Different language. It's no longer politicized. Now, if you believe in God, you believe in the Bible, you got to believe in, uh, in taking care of the world because God created this world, right? It's kind of like the theme of tonight's class. God created this, gave us the tools, wants us to act responsibly to better the world and not to harm the world, to better ourselves, not to harm ourselves. It comes down to a very simple equation. We are partners. Mom, final word. Oh, wait, hold on. You're muted. You got to unmute. Here. Yeah, I have a question. Sure. So the, 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 we, the, the common thinking is, oh, the waters came from above and from below, and they destroyed the world. But, right. But it, we, we, we actually have to think about it as, a, as something that is giving us an opportunity to re, renew our, ourselves and our, our dedication to Hashem, to God, and, and God's dedication to us. Right. And so it's, it's, it wasn't, we should, because um, who said it in the, Rabbi Alkavetz? Which, which one? Which, the which one group? who said that it's going to come down, he prophesied that it's going to come the, the wellsprings will start to open up from the, down from above and will will cause us to open up our own our own knowledge right so, he, so it's the bracha it's actually a blessing from the, the right the waters were not we shouldn't see that the waters is so destructive right well listen if, if for those that lived then <laughs> Maybe they would have, uh, you know, it, it, it did take out some folks. But the way that this is going to be manifest, according to the Zohar, in the 1800s, is going to be as a blessing as just this submersion of, 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 of knowledge. And to your point, because you're touching on what I think is, uh, is what, what Chassidus says about this, is that the flood was not merely destructive. It wasn't purely yeah. about destruction and, and punitive. It was about a rebirth, it was about right. yeah, cleansing, yeah. etc., about a different theme. But anyway, I think, right. I think the, the core idea here is we have so many gifts and there's so much power that we have in our hands and God only wants one thing, 
God says, I'll give you all this possibility, all this, you know, knowledge and all this technology and all this possibility. Use it wisely. All right, that's it for tonight. Um, I'll, I look forward to seeing you all next Thursday, same bad time, same bad channel for Torah study, 7.30. But before then, did I say Thursday? Ah, oh, I'm glad I mentioned Thursday. Thursday night, Cure Yourselves of the Talmud. See, it was like a, a Freudian slip, a commercial slip. I look forward to seeing you guys Wednesday night at 7.30, next Wednesday night at 7.30 for next session of Torah Studies. But before then, tomorrow night, Curious Tales of the Talmud. If you're curious about Curious Tales of the Talmud, join us, 8 o'clock on Zoom. Check out the website for more information. You can email me or call me or text me for more information. I'd be happy to um, explain what the course is about. It's basically Talmudic storytelling, breaking down stories, outlandish, absurd stories of the Talmud, and developing their deeper insights. By the way... Because I mentioned it before, and I don't want to leave anybody without that information because I want you all to be able to sleep tonight. Tomorrow night's class is about Greek riddles, a camouflage theological debate. Listen to this. Can't make this up. A snake's gestation period, a butcher's head for sale, and how to mend a broken millstone are just a few of the paradoxical riddles in a battle of wits between Jewish and Athenian sages presenting profound intellectual challenges to the fundamentals of our faith. So if you like philosophy, if you like riddles, if you like challenges, if you like Greek-Jewish debates, if you're not sure whether you want kishka or a Greek salad or anything in between, join me tomorrow night for Curious Tales of the Talmud. You don't want to miss this. All right, that's all, folks. Have a good night. God bless. We'll see you guys soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Thank for being you. here. I never...